back in your seat and you have a Bible with you, open it to Matthew chapter 2 and, and, or your favorite app. Today we're continuing looking in the book of Matthew at what we might consider the Christmas story according to Matthew, ultimately through the Spirit. And today we're going to look at how Christmas may uh, normally be thought of in terms of peace and calm and quiet, but yet this first Christmas took place with a very kind of broken background, and we're going to see this week again how we may be challenged. But before we do so, if everyone would just close your eyes, I'm not going to come around and steal your money. We all want us to reflect on where we're at kind of emotionally, because it's very important that we're present right now. Hopefully, hopefully as we've sang already the gospel and rejoiced in it, that, that God has maybe brought you near to Him, because He's near to you. But just... Again, I'm going to read down this list, and I want you to kind of locate where you are, because we're not trying to be the kind of church that says, forget about all your life while you're here. We want you to bring it here. So anger, hurt, lonely, sad, fear, shame, guilt, or gladness. What are you feeling right now? Just... Own that before the Lord. Tell him, say, Father, I'm, I'm feeling this, whichever it may be. Now, I just want us to pause in here. This is what God's saying to you, if nothing else. I'm with you. I'm with you right now. I sent my son to take care of whatever sin, suffering, satanic attack that's behind those things in your story or in your present or the fears of your Now let's look in Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would, by your Spirit, just bring great blessing to us through your word. We pray our eyes would be open to behold your glory. 
the glory of Christ, the baby who was born, the child whom they worshipped, the one who was king, is king, and will forevermore be king. We ask today that you would help us to humble ourselves, to submit more of our hearts, our souls, our whole selves to him as Lord, so that we might experience the great exceeding joy that they did then and that you want for us now in our everyday lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the bigger shocks that I remember hearing as a pastor was sitting down with a young lady once who I didn't know at the time but explained to me that she was pregnant. But her response was not, how am I going to deal with this or thank God. It was, it was a deep anger. She was angry at God and she was angry at this baby. I remember her stating in no uncertain terms that she hated it, she didn't want anything to do with it, and the reason was because she realized all that it meant. It was unexpected. And she knew changes were about to happen in her life that this baby were going to bring that would, be, that would not allow any sort of middle-of-the-road approach. She wanted to go to college. Well, now, what did that mean? She didn't even know if she loved the person who was the father of this baby. So do I just have to marry him? Am I just now stuck with this guy? She knew the shame and the, the guilt and the fear that it was going to bring within her family and in her community. And she's just thinking her dreams of her life now are unalterably changed because of this baby that was to come into the world. And I think we have a lot to learn from her when it comes to Jesus and when it comes to Christmas. We think about this baby that is being born Sometimes I think we forget the great threat that he brought into the world then. And if we see him for who he is now, not just as an opportunity to eat some sausage balls and exchange some presents, but if we see him as the king making the big and great claims that he makes, this is no sentimental situation we're walking into in this season. It is a threatening one. We are so often bored with Christmas. Maybe you're bored with the Christian life. Maybe ultimately you're bored with the one who is the Christ. Because you have forgotten or maybe never known the threat that he brings. Now we're not here just to talk about the, that as if it's bad news. Because the good news of this story, the Christmas story, Matthew 2, is that until we realize and feel and get the threat that Jesus brings, until that happens, we'll never experience the thrill that He brings. This COVID-19 Christmas may have the potential to feel, make Christmas more boring for you than it ever has before. You may be less parties, less people, less plans. But King Jesus will still have come and still Jesus, King Jesus will still be here. This may seem ridiculous, but we, some people have a lot of fun with the is die hard a Christmas movie debate. And there's many varying uh, intellectual opinions on that, probably even in this room. But maybe it's because some people want a little thrill, a little conflict in their Christmas. Maybe it's because Rudolph isn't cutting it, watching Elf for the 100,000th time isn't cutting it. And maybe it's revealing something deeper 
within us that we find actually met in a deeper and greater way in the true story of Christmas. Because the whole story of God from Genesis to Revelation is about a son who will be born. Go to Genesis 3.15. About a, a baby who will come through the line of Abraham, through the line of David. And it's not so much represented that this baby will be a cutie, but that this baby will be a killer. That he's coming to crush Satan. He's coming to kill sin. He's coming to do away with all evil and suffering in this world and all who stand on the side of evil and suffering and will not bow their knee to the one who comes as Lord, as life, will find themselves ultimately in that phrase that people like to use often against him on the wrong side of history. He will be meek and merciful. He will not be mean, but He will not tolerate our self-worship. And all may come to Him, as this text points out, but coming to Him will mean taking up a cross. He will give joy and life and freedom and hope, but only as He is trusted and followed as Lord. So we must feel the threat of Christmas if we are to feel the thrill of Christmas. The first thing we see, I think, in our text in these first eight verses is the thrill Jesus's, the threat Jesus' birth brings should thrill us. And it's threat. So we have here sort of catching us up in verse 1, the plot so far is that Jesus is born in Bethlehem as the son of David. That means this is the king that Israel and the nations have waited for. But some new characters are introduced here. Herod and the wise men, and we'll get into a minute, the chief priest and the scribes. So for those of us that know the rest of the story, this is not like just throwaway names. This is introducing folks and names and characters that are going to be central to the larger conflict that will ultimately lead to the cross. Herod. We don't know who Herod is. This is not going to be the same Herod that we see later, but this is his dad. This is Herod who was appointed by Rome as king of Judea. This is why this is... We'll get to even more what Herod does next week. But this is why this is a big threat. Herod's the king of the Jews. Rome has said Herod is the king of the Jews. And he was a ruthless eliminator of all threats past and present. He was an Adumean... He ruled firmly and ruthlessly. This is from Josephus, if many know this early historian of that time. He was ruthless. He murdered his own wife. Don't get any ideas. He murdered several of his sons, his children, and other relatives. Anybody that would threaten him dies. Faust threatens me, die. What's the, is it Alice in Wonderland? Off with their heads, right? This was King Herod. You want to threaten me, you die. But he did a lot of great things too that brought him a lot of glory that you would think people, if they were going to travel to come and visit somebody, you would travel to come and visit Herod. He built great fortresses. And one of the things that many people know this Herod for is he worked with the chief priests and the scribes in this period of history known as the Second Temple to build, rebuild the Temple of God. So Herod is this guy, he's in with Rome, he works with the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day. And then here comes these wise men. These wise men, also known as magi, 
in, in Eugene Peterson's translation of the New Testament, he, he, in the message, he calls them a band of scholars. They were like foreign intellectuals who studied the stars, they studied sacred writings, and they interpret dreams. I don't know why we call them kings, maybe because of some Old Testament prophecy that speaks about kings coming to Jesus, but uh, not trying to ruin that Christmas song for you. But this is what they did. And most people believe it says when they come from the east is that they're not necessarily what we might think of as oriental. So they're more ruined in the song. But they're probably from Babylon. Babylon would have been from the east. And that will be important in a little bit. But likely the reason that they're so acquainted with what's going on here is because guess who used to live in Babylon, right? A lot of Jewish people. Jewish people were exiled to Babylon. Probably a lot of people in Babylon become very acquainted with the Jewish scriptures and prophecies, and especially these wise men who study dreams, sacred writings, and how the stars align in relationship to that would be the ones who took interest. They come to a new place, Jerusalem, very important in the story of God, and there's this new plot. They come to Herod because they've seen this star that through their astrological study and their study of likely the scriptures and these prophecies has signaled to them that a king would be born who is king of the Jews. The text doesn't say that they followed the star to Jerusalem, though. We're going to get that from what we see in verse 9. It just says they saw the star. And likely what they're referencing here, many people believe, is Numbers 24, 17. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which we read that gives some commentary on what Jewish people thought at that time, saw this verse as a messianic prophecy. Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter, a king, that is, shall arise out of Israel. Now there's some mystery around this star. Was it just supernaturally placed there by God? There's some Facebook posts about a star now, right? Y'all seen them. Was it the aligning of Jupiter and Saturn that took place several times actually during that year? Was it some type of supernova? You can go read all the things. But whatever it was, whether God just put a new star there or it's these other astrological events taking place, these wise men, these, these foreign sort of intellectuals, interpreters of stars, dreams, and sacred writings see that and it signals to them a king is going to be born of the Jews. And so they go to the people who they think, well, surely they know about it. I mean, we're probably late to the party. Turns out they're early. And they've come to worship him, not Herod. They've not come to see this temple and say, chief priests and scribes, how great are you? They've come to see this one who is born king. Now, this is a unique thing, too, as well. You're usually not born king. You're usually born like a prince. And there's a process. And people have to approve the process. But Jesus' birth is messing all that up. He's born king. There's no process. There's no outside approval. But God has said this is king. So no, we're not surprised understanding that background then when we get to verse 3 and we see that folks are troubled. So in verse 3 we read, that Herod is troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. What does this mean to be troubled? It's to be agitated, to be anxious, to be angered, to be afraid. It's all packed into the word that's behind this. I mean, Herod's king. 
Who's, what's going on here? He's troubled. He's worried. He's upset. This is not just a prophetic fulfillment. This is an attack on his rule. This is an attack on his identity. This is an attack on his legacy. This is an attack on his, his, his work. And we also see that all Jerusalem is troubled. Sometimes this speaks of just all of the people, and it may mean that here, but many times when it speaks of this, it's speaking in reference to these leaders. But it's probably both. Everybody's kind of upset. What does this mean? We've had people come as messiahs before, and they led these revolts, and it ended up with Rome just bringing the heat down on everybody. The chief priests and scribes, though, are likely very troubled, because nobody asked them. They have peacekeeping arrangements with Herod and other Roman officials. And now all of a sudden, this baby is born? It's going to mess all that up? And so in verses 4 through 8, then we see Herod's response. Herod wants to know from these chief priests and scribes where this baby is. And this is where we see that, and I've already probably spent too much time here. This is where we see this isn't just a matter of like following a star. Right? The stars signal this, but they don't know where the baby is. They just know a king is being born to the Jews. And so they go and ask. Well, Herod doesn't know, so he asks the chief priests and scribes, and they quote to him Micah 5, 2. They, it says, O you Bethlehem, the land of Judea, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Now, it's interesting they stop there, and you can just imagine maybe Herod to use our little imagination, maybe Herod said, that's enough, I just want to know he's in Bethlehem. But if you keep reading verses 3 through 5 of Micah chapter 5, it says, therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, listen to this part, for now he shall be great, to the ends of the earth. So even in that prophecy, it's not just saying this is where the king of the Jews will be born, but if you keep reading Micah, it's saying he's going to be born, and he's not just going to be king of the Jews, he will be king of the world. So Herod wants him to go investigate. It says he wants him to go do this secretly, and we wonder why. And probably it's just because Herod wants to stay under control. He wants to have control of the narrative. He doesn't want news getting out everywhere. Hey, here's where the king of the Jews is born. He doesn't want that type of thing stirred up. And he gives his intent, which is a lie, as we'll find, and a very vicious one. He says he wants to go, them to come back and say this is where he is so he can go do it. He can go and worship him. I mean, let's keep this a secret. You come back, secretly tell me where he's at, because I want to go worship him too. This birth does not elicit tame responses. Because the claims that Jesus is making through his birth, the claims that are made around him at his birth, force very, very big threats upon those who understand them. As we begun, the young lady pregnant with the baby is, is kind of right. Having, or totally right in this regard, having a baby tends to be more than you expected. Middle of the road responses don't work. 
I think I'll feed it one day and another day not. I don't feel like getting up, so I won't. I had plans this afternoon. So you're just going to have to deal, take care of yourself. I mean, you can do that, but we typically have certain opinions about people who do that. Are you going to let it live or let it die is really the question. But no matter what, there's no going back to life as it were before. Children are gifts. They are blessings from the Lord. But if they're not handled wisely, they can threaten our mental stability, financial stability, marriage stability, relationship with our in-laws stability. Merry Christmas. Maybe why some of you are glad. Oh, sorry, coronavirus. We can't go be together. <laughs> you finally have that excuse you wanted. It's a blessing, but not a burden, but we can't take it lightly. There's no sort of like calm, nuanced approach to taking care of a baby. This reminds me of what C.S. Lewis is famous for. Whatever we want to do with Jesus, we can't make him out into just being some mere good teacher. This is, this is Christmas. Christmas is not just sort of like this, this sort of sentimental holiday. No, big claims are made around Jesus. First off, to add an L to the three that you're familiar with him, is it a legend? Well, there's just too many things written. I mean, we've got Josephus, we've got Philo, we've got all of these people who are non-Christians who claim that Jesus really existed. So if you've wondered if that was made up, no, there's like, it's just he, he lived, he existed. There's too much written outside of the Bible to prove that. And so we have to deal with his claims. And his claims are, well, what, he claimed to be God. They claimed him to be God. They're going to worship him. So is he a liar? I mean, is it, so if he's a liar, then he's not a good teacher. You can't trust him. And he walked around claiming to be God, claiming to be able to forgive sin, claiming to be able to heal the sick and raise the dead and defeat the devil. So is he a liar or is he a lunatic? Because if he's not really that and he's walking around claiming it, that's crazy. Right, I think Lewis says, it's like somebody walking around saying, I'm a poached egg. Okay, buddy. Having, I'm, I'm glad. So is he a legend? No. Well, is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? If he's not those things, then he must be Lord. There's no middle ground. We can make up with it, but if we're going to deal honestly with history, if we're going to deal honestly with the truth, then we have a decision to make. And some of us in here on paper may think that we believe that He's Lord, but I want to invite you to look into your lives. Maybe behind that is in the other book that Lewis writes, Chronicles of Narnia, where Lucy acts about Aslan and says, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, no, he's not safe, but he's good. Christmas, rightly understood, is not safe. If you do not feel the threat that Jesus brings as Lord, then you likely have not yet felt the thrill that he brings. This may be the heart of what true conversion is, is you feel that tension. Jesus is calling me to submit my life to him. Not on the days I feel like it. Not on the days it's convenient. We're going to get to this in a minute. Not on the days that my family's supportive of that. 
Not on the days that my friends are supportive of that or my co-workers are supportive of that. He's Lord all the time. But we don't often do this. As Dorothy Sayers says, she says, we've declawed the line of Judah. In her books, letters to a in her book, that is, Letters to a Diminished Church, she says, the people who hanged Christ, who crucified Jesus to do them justice, they never accused Jesus of being boring. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. She goes on, it has been left to later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have efficiently paired the claws of the line of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Have you declawed the line of Judah in your life and made him your pet to study or to comfort you when you feel alone and then to go on about your life as convenient to you? Christmas comes to challenge that. That baby in that manger, that king of the Jews, echoes what Abraham Kuyper said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Jesus is a threat, properly understood. He's an international threat here. These dudes are coming from the east. So we got a lot of people today who are trying to have go deeper spiritually. I'm not being mean. And where does it look like they're going? They're saying, if we really want to experience God, if we really want to know the world in a way that deals with suffering, then we got to go east. That is, we got to find it in these eastern religions of mysticism where there's not so much truth, there's not so much clarity, there's not so much lordship. But in, the, in this story, they come from the east to the one who is king. The elite opinion of the nations here is bowing down to Jesus. Jesus threatens our inclusivism. The inclusivism, that is, that says there are many ways to God. The inclusivism that uses that out, outdated and, and really just crazy illustration, like we're all blind men touching the same elephant. You know, we're trying to all get at the same thing here with our religions. No, what the story of Christmas tells us is Jesus is not only king of the Jews, he's king of the world. The same Jesus who will say in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The one whom the, the prophets, the apostles say in Acts chapter 4.12, there is no other name named among men by which you must be saved, but Jesus. The same Jesus who will say in Matthew 7, the road is narrow that leads to eternal life. That of whom Paul will write in Philippians 2, that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Jesus who will return in Revelation 19, 16, and he will have written on him, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is a threat. This is a threat to relationships you have. This may one day be a threat to your job. To say, 
Jesus is Lord and none other. This will threaten your friendship. We don't want to be mean. We don't want to be the guys out to crush everybody. But we may have to decide, will we stand with the one who is Lord over all stories, all narrative, the great meta-narrative, majestic King Jesus. The incarnation isn't one of many Christmas myths or holiday options. It is laying down the gauntlet that there is only one who is Lord and it is Jesus. But there's also a local threat here. It's not just that the world's being upended. I mean, these guys are going to go back, and I mean, they didn't have Christmas then. But imagine these Babylonian wise men are coming back home, like, that's going to mess with their relationships. But now it's local. Herod, the chief priests, the scribes, Rome and Jerusalem in that locale are being disrupted. It threatens the political and religious world that they lived in. And it does so today as well. We could walk away from here maybe feeling a little, well, at least I believe in Jesus. He's king of the, Lord, king of the nations, Lord of all, the way to God. But, but he comes here too to threaten us. They were very comfortable in their religious way of life. But we know what the story's going to go. It's gonna, Jesus is going to upend everything for Jerusalem. Everything. And it goes down to the personal level as well. Because we see as Herod deals with this, as the chief priests and scribes will deal with this, all our self-worship is messed with. D.A. Carson speaks of Herod's hypocritical humility. I'm going to worship him. It's easy for us to point the finger at Herod, but how many of us have said, I'm going to worship him. Only when we find out actually what he wants from our lives, we say, oh, I think I better kill him. And we never say that out loud. But that's your options today. But these are not just threats. These things all are behind great thrills if we think about it. The good news that Jesus is Lord of the nations is threatening, but it's thrilling because that mean, that's why we're saved today. Isn't it good news that here in Cleveland, Tennessee, the king of the Jews has invaded our lives? It's thrilling because the nations can be saved. It's not just a threat, but when we get the threat, then we get to get in on the thrill of taking the gospel to every person in the world. We have something to live for that is bigger than our, all our little petty everyday dramas. If we get this threat with this thrill, then that's why this Christmas you might, and there's still time, think of how can I not just give to my own family's enjoyment, but how might I give to the world? How might I support international missions with my finances? How might... I help my family connect to that through our prayers. Locally, 
Yeah, our missional communities aren't going to look the same for the next couple weeks. Families may not be happening. But this should propel us into seeing that this is the reason why our MCs have common missions. is because we want to bring the good news of Jesus to particular people, places, and times. And if we get the threat that Jesus can bring is also the thrill, then we'll want to get in on that. And it won't have to be on our own terms. It won't be something we do. It will be the identity that we live out of. We will see that our family meals or our family talks are not merely checklist religious activities, but they are declarations and engagements of spiritual warfare. I asked Daniel if I could talk about him this morning. He likes attention. He's sitting over everybody knows him. Look at him, cutting his eyes at me. I'll brag on Jacob and Hannah. So Jacob and Hannah, most of their time in our church have lived, a lot of their time have lived in Dayton, Tennessee. So you might think, oh, well, if you live in Dayton, all this missional community talk, blah, blah, blah. How can you engage with people? You're just showing up family meal. Well, let me tell you this. Jacob and Hannah committed... Even though she taught school in Saudi Daisy and at the time he worked at Memorial Hospital, that no matter what, we're going to show up to serve this neighborhood on this Wednesday night. We might not can do more, but we can do that. And through that, Daniel fell in love with them. Whether they like it or not, right, Daniel? <laughs> Jacob Hannah, Jacob Hannah, Jacob Hannah, Jacob Hannah. Do you realize there's other people in our neighborhood that because of Daniel, know who Jacob and Hannah are. There are people who are like, when I talk to Daniels, Jacob, Hannah, Jacob, Hannah, Jacob, Hannah. When Daniel came into our church, this was not his normal thing. We can't get rid of him, right? If we wanted to, we couldn't, right, Daniel? He's going to be here. If you give him your phone number, then just get ready. He's going to be in your life. But before Daniel, and I asked him permission to do this, before Daniel came in here, Daniel was engaged with various different drugs in this neighborhood. Daniel had people in his life who would take advantage of him due to some, due to some issues and struggles he has. But Daniel now wants to get together. He wants to talk about Jesus. He wants to be with the people of God. He wants to be loved. He wants to show up at my house two hours early for family meal and have my wife threaten me if I don't get do something with him. You don't got to beg that guy. And it's because there was a disruption that took place because a family in Dayton said, we're going to be at family meal. We're going to love people. We're going to disinconvenience ourselves to do what we can. Even when it's not perfect, we'll do what's possible. That only happens if Jesus is Lord. And then in our personal lives, what a threat to our self-worship Jesus brings. But it's thrilling because He gives us the opportunity to experience something better than our dead, enslaving idols. Jesus said, we were watching The Chosen this week at Family Meal through our family talk time. And Jesus said this, I, I can't remember it to these little kids, or maybe it was last week, somebody correct me. We forget he said this sometimes, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. Now he's going to say something kind of the opposite also in the Gospels. 
But we got to deal with all this. It's like families are going to be divided because of me. That's hard to hear at Christmas. If Jesus is Lord, spouse will be divided against spouse, parents, children, brothers, brothers, sisters, sisters. Because there's, he's just that type of dynamite. He's claiming, he's coming in and calling you to follow him as Lord. He's not calling you to negotiate with the people in your life about what they want to do. He threatens our facts. He threatens our feelings. He threatens our families. He threatens our, threatens our flinch responses. He threatens our stories. He comes to be Lord of our story. Some of us have certain interpretations of our lives, interpretations of our presence, emotional experiences to those, and as much as we might say we don't like them, they're what makes us feel safe. They've worked. And Jesus is no respecter of those. He comes with mercy and gentleness and kindness, but he comes to disrupt all that would enslave us. So what's the proper response? The threat that Jesus' birth brings us should thrill us. And it should. Scary. It's thrilling if we see him for who he is. He wants to give us better, but also there's the threat that Jesus' worship brings should thrill us. This is verses 9 through 12. The magi, the wise men, seek Jesus and they worship. Jesus was not just a mere matter of intellectual curiosity for these guys. Maybe at some point he started out that way. Oh, a journey, road trip, let's have some fun. But it ended with these guys falling on their faces before Jesus is king, and their lives and the world that they lived in would never be the same. Now this is important to see. We, the star gets a lot of hype in this story. And I'm not saying it shouldn't. But if we really see this story for what it is, it should be the scriptures, not the star, that come to the preeminence of what it means to seek Jesus. It seems very clear, even though it's not explicitly stated, that these dudes had somehow known some scripture that led them to Jerusalem when they saw this star. I think it was probably Numbers 24. So they see the star, but they can't make heads or tails of it. God, God exposes himself, reveals himself in natural creation, but it's never enough. The heavens declare the glory of God. But without the word of God, we can't interpret the world of God. And then notice when they get there, they don't know where to go next. And what is it that leads them to Bethlehem? Well, verse 9 says, this star goes, but, but we've already heard. What's getting them to Bethlehem? It's not the star, it's Micah 5.2. It's the Word of God. We cannot find Jesus apart from the Scriptures. When they get there, verse 10 tells us they rejoice, and it just heaps all these words they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It's like joy, 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 joy. How do, how, do the, how do we translate that from Greek into English? Joy, it's just 
They, they really rejoiced with a lot of joy that's great joy. Again, it wasn't, this, it wasn't like our calculations are correct. They didn't rejoice in their journey being completed. They rejoiced in the one whom they came to. They worshipped him, verse 11 says. And, that, and that's what joy is. When you enjoy something, you are saying, this is of the great worth. There's no, there's no worship without joy. There's no joy without worship. The destination, not the journey, was the point. They fall down and worship Jesus. Side note, there's no worshiping of Mary here. They give gifts to Jesus. Now these gifts, a lot are made out of them, and we don't want to make too much, but a part of it was probably past prophecies being fulfilled, like Isaiah 63, the 60 verse 3. The nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Again, this is where the king's comments come in in these songs. Isaiah 60, verse 6, A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. We could go to some other passages. But there were these prophecies that when the Messiah, the King, the Christ is born, the nations are going to come and bring gifts. But also we're going to see that this is not the end of this story. This King will be the one who is crucified. And the one who's to be anointed with things like this are what they anointed dead people with. And then one day the book of Revelation will tell us that the nations will come and bring their gifts. This is why they're willing to risk for him, verse 12 says. So being warned in a dream, they leave. They're not going back to Herod. Now before, that's a throwaway verse to us. Herod works under Rome. Rome has this little thing going on called an empire. And these guys are saying, we're going to side with Jesus over the Roman empire. He's the ultimate king. Coronavirus may make our Christmases weird this year. Ever how you slice it, and I'm not going to debate it with you, hundreds of thousands of people, it'll be different because they're dead. Their families won't have them this year. Many elderly people who, particularly in nursing homes, won't be able to be visited this year. My mom got coronavirus last week. And I see sympathy coming on her. I'm so selfish, I'm just thinking, will I get my biscuits? That's horrible. But it's not just that I won't get my biscuits. It's will I get to be with my mom at Christmas? I don't know. I'm going to tr do, try to make the math work. It makes you want to get bummed out. When we look at our world and we look in our lives, when we look in our stories, the things that maybe have happened to you this year, this week, it's easy just to get bummed out and think, what's, what's the point? Why try? I'm a lost cause. I've said Jesus is Lord before, and look at me. I just can't do it. 
Some of us may be like, I can hear and believe this stuff in my head, but I know I'm going to walk out of here and I'm not going to have any clue what it really means to live it out. What we're called to do is the same thing that these wise men did. We're called to take our eyes off ourselves and put them on Him. The only way that joy is going to rise in your heart is if you see that this one who was born came to be all for you that you could never be for yourself. All for Israel that it could never be for itself. All for the world. That if you'll just simply say, I'm just going to fall down, as we sang, fall on our knees like they did and worship Him and find His worth to be enough, then I can grieve, but I can grieve with hope. That may be your act of spiritual warfare this Christmas, is to grieve with hope. It's our act of spiritual warfare all the time in so many ways, is to grieve with hope. Jesus threatens our griefless, our hopeless grief, and Jesus thrills us because He gives us hope in our grief. But we've got to seek Him. These dudes sacrificed a lot and went a long way to get to Jesus. But this was a trip, you might say, but I don't have no star. But you've got the Scriptures. And if you're bored with this book, it's not because this book is boring. If you're bored with the one who is revealed in this book, it's not because there's something that's lacking in it. It's because the world, the flesh, and the devil want to keep you from the words that lead you to life. Do you think it felt good for these wise men on that journey the whole way? And to come under such threats? No, it's not about you saying, well, I've tried to read the Bible and I didn't walk away from it feeling great. Well, what's the end? It sounds like self-worship is there. But did you go after Jesus? You don't know where it's going to lead and that is a threat, but the thrill is you will find Jesus in the words of God. You will find Him when you start to realize that it's not about the journey so much as it is the destination. I know that sounds kind of backwards, the way our world talks. There's some truth in both. When it comes to Jesus, He's the destination. If you've used Jesus for anything else, you will be disappointed. There are people who find great disappointment in our church, and they should in many ways. We're very imperfect. But sometimes what is revealed is that if the church doesn't live up to something, then people quit on Jesus. What? We're not going to live up to everything. Were you following the church, or were you following Jesus? Your life story's not going to live up. To everything. You've had dreams in your life and they didn't happen. Was Jesus a means to the end or was he the end? Who are you seeking? If you seek him, you will find him to be enough because he is the only one that can give us this joy. Jesus threatens all all of our self-justifications and rationalizations for why we live such miserable lives. He threatens it. 
He threatens our being depression junkies. He threatens us sinking into ourselves, into our self-pity. He threatens all that. Not because He's mean. He loves us and He meets us there. But He's not going to leave you there. He wants to lead you to that place that Paul found that was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. But the only way we get there is the way they got there. We fall on our knees. We say... Jesus, I no longer am Lord of my life. I set no terms anymore. I have no expectations on you. You're Jesus. You're King. And that's risky. We don't know where that will take us in our relationships. We don't know where that will take us in our lives. Who we'll have to ask for forgiveness. Who we'll have to give forgiveness to. But He's worth it. The irony of this text is, as we close, is the chief priests and the scribes don't go. What's the deal with that? There's been this announcement that the king of the Jews, the king of the world has been born, and they're saying, we'll tell you where if he was, where, he was, where he's at. And they don't go. They should have been the first ones there. The question for us today is who will come? All are welcome, the text says. Pagan, Babylonian astrologers come to know Jesus. And they're the ones going after Him. While the ones who can quote the Old Testament are uninterested. Who will come to Jesus when they have to lose control? Who will come to Jesus where they have to say, I've looked at my life and you know what? I think it's time I quit calling the shots. Like we started, this baby is serious. He elicits no tame responses when he is known for who he is. But we must feel the threat of Christmas we are experiencing the thrill. Father, we thank you that you are with us. We come now to the table. May we crucify all of our guilt, fear, and shame through honest confession and honest acceptance of the finished work of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.